Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Hey everybody, this is Cameron Harold, and I just wanted to thank you for joining us on the 50th episode of the Second in Command podcast. The people that you're going to hear from in this episode are the people who were from our most listened to episodes of the first year. The people that you're going to hear from are Teresa LeBranche from Allure Medical, Roman Cowan from College Hunks Hauling Junk, Brittany Walters from Scribe Media, Harley Finkelstein from Shopify, Rachel Pashivas from Anne Marie Skincare, Eric Church from 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and Anna Collins from Bulletproof Coffee. We're really excited to share these highlights and brilliant insights from all of those guests. As well, we encourage you to uh, listen to all of the past episodes from last year as well, and also to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or anywhere that you listen to podcasts today. Please also share this episode with your friends. This episode is slightly longer than normal, as we didn't want to cut any of the crucial content, but we really did want to share all of this with you. I also really wanted to thank my team for an amazing year of pulling this all together and also for helping us build the COO Alliance and the rest of my business. So really huge kudos go out to Rachel Blanc, Meredith Kuba, Stephen Safak, Jason Torres, Amanda Relay-Voss, as well as the rest of the group that are always working to help bring you these great episodes. So without further ado, enjoy. Teresa LeBranche from Allure Medical, you said something really early and I'm going to come back to it right now. And I don't even know if you, if it dawned on you when you said it, but I've known you now through the CO Alliance and through some coaching over the last year and a bit. And you often talk about the fact that you're really the only person who says no to, to the CEO, to Chip and or to Dr. Moak. And so when you keep saying no, you often feel like you're that um, conflicting opinion to him. And I think you said right at the very beginning that when you first met him, even before he hired you, you had a bit of a conflicting opinion with something. And you said maybe he respected that in you. I think you need to internalize that and know that he actually respects that in you. I think he probably spends most of his life where people don't say what they think and they're looking up to him and admiring him and trying to figure him out. And you're the only one who's probably ever really said, or one of the only rare people who's ever really said, no, that doesn't work or no, I disagree or no, I think you're wrong. And I think that conflicting opinion might be one of the core reasons why you are where you are. Just worth thinking. I appreciate that. And you know, I've taught that to my teams that quick starts inherently when they get a processor or a fact finder who needs more information, they take that as an opposition to their idea. And I've now taught them to pre-suade the situation so that if they're speaking to a visionary or someone who has a new idea, to say something similar to, I really like that idea. I think it might really work. I just have a few more questions. Bingo. Time to ask. And it, it, it lowers the guard of the person with the idea so that they know you're not questioning their idea. You just want a little more information. Yeah, I, I, you got it. I, I adopted a three-day rule early in my career here where if he came with an idea, I would support the idea I wouldn't really ask many questions. And after three days passed, then I would 
reapproach the situation. And I would recap and make sure I had a clear understanding of his vision. By then, usually it had morphed a tiny bit because he was really just saying the vision to get some feedback and kind of develop it a little more, kind of mulling it around. Yeah, just swirling it around in his head still. Yeah, and so that was very effective. And at that time, after the three days, I could see, you know, now it's time to make the implementation strategy and the execution strategy. But before that, just let it morph a little. Well, and I love what you're saying about the persuasion part. When you walk in and say, look, I love your idea. I just have a couple more questions before we can run with it. I don't know what the movie what the movie is, but it was like that. You had me at hello um, for a quick for a quick start. That's our love language. Like that would be that would be any quick start's love language is to say, "I love your idea. Let me just ask you questions." Because we we're still thinking out loud. You know, as as anyone, and if you haven't done a Colby A profile, I suggest if you're listening to do it and have your CEO or your team do them as well. Um, it tells you how you start projects, and uh, a quick start is someone who starts them quickly and then plans later. Often you know, we're accused of shooting from the hip or making it up as we go or, or winging it. Um, and, and someone who is a very high first number is called a fact finder and they ask a lot of questions before they start something. The second high number, so the Colby is a four number um, profile. The second number is called follow through and that's really a person who puts systems in place before they start something. And then the last one is implementer and that's someone who needs the tools or a model in place before they can start. And it's really important to understand with your team and yourself, how you like to start things. It's cool that you guys are doing those. Have, have you done any other personality profiles with your yes. team? Yeah, we sure have. In fact, uh, we pre-screen all of our employees before they onboard with a Colby so that we know how do they take information best? How can they learn the most quickly? What do they need to be able to be successful in how their training is presented to them? Additionally, we use the predictable success model um, and identify who's an integrator, who's a visionary, you know, and kind of complement the Colby with that. Hmm. And recently for my direct reports, I have had them take the love language test. And I know that sounds crazy, but Cameron, you recommended it to me. And it was so effective in understanding the difference of what a person needs to feel valued. And it was really enlightening to me. I, I instructed my direct reports, take this with your work in mind, not your spouse or lover per se, because it would change the answers. But to my surprise, some of my direct reports actually had physical affection ranking in the top three. Yeah. And I never even considered the fact that someone may just need a hug. Roman Cowan from College Hunts Hauling Junk. Talk to us about what you believe are some of the core competencies for college hunks then. Uh, so from a core competency perspective, and I'd probably say what differentiates us actually from the competition is that we are truly values-based. And our BHAG, or our long-term vision, if you will, in summary says we want to become an iconic brand. And for most people, when they, they hear that, it sounds kind of, uh, vague. So we say, if you think of the Disney's, the Zappos, the Starbucks's, the companies that you're going to spend significant amounts of money with, where otherwise you didn't have to, for example, paying four or five dollars for a cup of coffee, where you'd pay a dollar for that same coffee in a white cup. Um, that's the type of brand we're trying to become. And we want to be, be recognized for our culture, which we're starting to be recognized for our client service experience. And as you mentioned, our franchise partner fulfillment 
And to do so, we think if we're purpose-driven, values-based, and socially conscious, we can get it done. So um, we are actively trying to become more socially conscious in our franchise partners' territory all across the U.S. and in Canada now, but also here at the corporate uh, level where we've partnered with Feeding Children Everywhere, uh, organization that allows um, us to donate two meals for every junk job we do or every move job we complete. And that's, that's, that's something that takes us a little bit further from uh, a, a moving company or junk removal company into a purpose-driven, socially conscious company. Uh, we, we celebrate our core values every day. We hire, we, we, we retain, we promote, and we, quite frankly, fire based on our core values. And we take it extremely seriously. So I think those are some of the things that, that separate us separate and apart from the, the sizzle, which is our name, obviously, is a fun, catchy name, College Hunk, Colin Junk, and moving now, of course, and then our fun colors, orange and green. But beneath the layer, we are much more. And when, we, when I come to work every day and I look at the type of people we've let in, I like to call them a, our pride, a lion pride. And um, what we're trying to do is interview and sift through people that don't quite fit in the pride, and that doesn't make them any worse or any better. They could be tigers somewhere, but it, we're trying to get a, a pride of lions, and they all have to be um, have one common commonality, and which is culture first, socially conscious, purpose driven, and they fit our core values. So that that I think is what differentiates us from a lot of different com- companies out there. About your marketing, you guys came out with colors um, that are are pretty uh, pretty out there. I mean, orange and green aren't exactly two colors that anybody would grab as you know. Hey, these should be our company colors, but they've really stood you proud. Um, you know, you can see your your trucks for miles as they're driving down the road, and your signage everywhere. Can you walk us through? some of the beliefs that, that College Hunks has in marketing, um, the guerrilla marketing side or the branding, positioning, anything that you guys think have helped you build your brand? Absolutely. I think what I would say that our beliefs are you overwhelm the marketplace and own your market. And we, we teach our franchise partners proprietary information about how to do so. But any person that's in a market where there is a French, uh, College Hunks franchise partner, they should feel as if they're 5x the number of trucks that we actually have in that market. And that's when we say you're winning. When people are saying, man, you've got so many trucks around here when there are only two or three trucks. Um, so we believe in overwhelming the market. Uh, we believe in excellent customer service, which is the first line of great marketing. We think that if you want to retain and have repeat clients and referral clients, excellent service is where it starts. And that's why we want to become that iconic brand where when a college hunks franchise partner does a job in someone's home, that person speaks about that job for weeks and weeks to come. And hopefully we're, we're, we're going into the right people's homes, the target audience, and then they're talking to people who are similarly made up so that we're getting more repeat jobs that are um, relevant to our industry um, in terms of our average ticket. We call it average job size. Um, we believe in standing out. So you mentioned the colors. Um, I'm sure you've read the book about the purple cow. And it basically talks about if you see a field of cows, you know, the black and the white, typical or brown cows, you see one big old purple cow, people are going to drive past and stick out and look and say, wow, look at that. Um, People might even be interested in going up and saying, I want to see that the milk from that cow and not the milk from the other cow. It could be the exact same, but that allows you to stand out from the bunch. And that's where the the colors, the green and orange, if we were to stick a college hunks, hauling junk or a college hunks moving truck, within the field of other trucks. And, you know, I love um, competitors as well, you know, got jumps of the world. But if you stick our trucks beside them, 
the average person is going to take a look at the big old orange and green one. So we, we're big on standing out for the right reasons, obviously for the physical appearance, aesthetically. But we're also big on standing out for our service, which I mentioned, our service philosophy. And that's a huge piece of our success and gaining so much market share in the move-in side and, the move and on junk removal. And then we're big on overwhelming the market in the sense that we want to appear larger than we are. And I think it's just now that the, the, the image of college hunks that has been portrayed out for years has always been much bigger. The brand has always been much bigger than who we are as a company. But now most recently, as we've been doubling every two years, we've kind of caught up to the brand, which is, which is awesome that I've been able to be a part of the team to do that. Brittany Walters from Scribe Media. When you're running with all these freelancers, how do you guys manage um, the freelancers in terms of, you know, getting stuff done, but also in terms of making them feel like they're a part of the tribe and part of the culture? How do you how do you bring them in and keep them part of the culture when they're remote? And how do you manage them and get results through them? Yeah, so it's a, a bit different for our, our tribe members and our freelancers. So I'll answer the question from the freelancer perspective first. Sure. Um, over the course of the past year, we've done a lot of work to integrate, um, or at least to give our freelancers the option of integrating into a lot of the tools that we use. And so um, all of our project management happens on one singular platform that freelancers have access to. So they can see the progress of their project. They upload their files there. They can ask questions to our full-time team and the project managers there. Um, so it's much easier for them to have the immediate support and access they need. And then we also have a Slack channel that our freelancers can choose to join just so that they have community amongst themselves. Um, we try regularly to do freelancer meetups in certain cities where we have a lot of, of freelancers that contribute regularly so that they can uh, build relationships with one another, share advice with one another about how to level up their careers above and beyond the work that they're doing with Book in a Box. Um, and then we just regularly share our culture with them. We share stories of things that are meaningful to us or um, details about how we've made decisions that a lot of freelancers would normally not have access to um, for the opportunity to really connect with the company that they're contributing to. But they really are the life source of the work that we do. They're, they're phenomenally talented and they contribute so much to the, the books and the other media products that we're creating. Uh, and so we really do try to constantly do right by them, pay them quickly, show gratitude for the work that they're doing and invite them to be a part of the things that we're excited about as a company. What were some of the key lessons that you learned from looking at culture and being kind of, um, I guess, interested in company cultures? Ooh, the biggest one is trying to differentiate between phenomenal marketing and companies who actually walk the talk. And so for me, the biggest thing to look into to differentiate between those things is results. Going back to results, what's the trajectory? that this company's on? Are they going to continue rising up? What is, what, what's the, the history of results that they've already achieved or any patterns that you can identify in the way they've made decisions, uh, the way they've honored their values, the way they're communicating about their, their own culture, their values and principles publicly? Um, all of those things I think are really important. Like when I was going through my interview process with JT McCormick, our CEO, uh, Zach Obra and Tucker Max, our co-founders, I interviewed each of them one-on-one -on -one separately, and I asked a lot of the same questions because I wanted to see, is there consistency in their answers? Is, you know, do they have completely misaligned perspectives of where the company's heading and what their place is in it and what my place may be if I'm offered the position? Or do these things align, and are they frequently referencing their own culture or using, like, clearly using that as a lens through which they're operating? 
um, and I was blown away by all of my interactions with, with everybody through Book in a Box. Harley Finkelstein from Shopify. How did you grow in your, your COO role when you, I guess, left law? Was, were you in law or your MBA when you met Tobias? So I, uh, I was born in Montreal uh, and I lived there until I was about 12 years old. And then when I was 12, I, my family moved to South Florida uh, to a place called Boca Raton, which uh, is, is a great place if you're retired, not a great place if you're, uh, if you're a young man and, and want to have some fun. Uh, and so, um, after high school, I ended, up, I ended up moving back to Canada to go to McGill University. Decided uh, my first year of McGill to start a business, mostly out of necessity. I had to start supporting myself, so I built a little t-shirt business, and uh, we started making t-shirts for universities uh, across across Canada, um, and and built a really nice little company. When I finished undergrad, I had a bunch of uh, really great mentors uh, in my life at that point, and most of them convinced me that that t-shirt business that I had really had no competitive advantage. There was no, uh, there was no moat around the business. And so even if I was selling, you know, quite a few t-shirts, uh, you know, tens of thousands of t-shirts to all these universities, um, it was very easy to disrupt me in the same way that I disrupted um, other incumbents. One mentor in particular uh, convinced me that uh, to become a better entrepreneur, I may want to consider going to law school. Mm-hmm. And he, he happened to be teaching law at the University of Ottawa uh, in 2005. And so he's like, why don't you apply to the University of Ottawa and, and, and go to law school there? And uh, at that point, I, you know, I, again, I, I, I liked business. I loved entrepreneurship. I, I, I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur the rest of my life, but I wasn't sure where I was going to go with entrepreneurship. And so the, the ability to uh, learn more about the law around negotiation, around some very complex corporate finance understanding and philosophies that I would get in law school, that was very appealing to me. And so in 2005, I moved from Montreal to Ottawa and uh, started law school. Uh, although I, I really enjoyed my first couple of weeks of school uh, when, I got to, when I got here, um, I, I didn't know anyone here. I had no friends. I had no family in Ottawa. Um, I just had this one mentor who was teaching law. And when I began to ask around uh, where all the entrepreneurs hung out, I was, I was pointed into a particular direction. Um, and, and just an aside on that, one of the things that I've done throughout my life, whether it was living in Montreal or then moving to Florida, moving back to Montreal, moving to Ottawa, I always found that entrepreneurs in any city uh, were, were typically where I'd find my tribe, like-minded people who uh, I can develop real, really good relationships with. And so moved to Ottawa, asked where the entrepreneurs hung out. And um, I was directed to a coffee shop in the Glebe, which is a small little uh, area, small, really nice area of Ottawa. And I was told that every Friday night, a group of really smart entrepreneurs hung out there. And so without you know, giving it any, any, any more thought, I showed up on one Friday night to that coffee shop and I met five or six entrepreneurs. And it was, uh, it was some people that, that, that you know and, and some of your listeners may know. It was uh, Sam Zaid, who at the time was just building Get Around. He's, he's recently obviously moved to San Francisco to build Get Around Out. It was Paul Lem, who built Spartan Bioscience. It was Luke Levesque, who built TravelPod, who's now uh, uh, a senior leader at Facebook. Wow. And it, and it, was, uh, and it was Toby. And the interesting part about Toby was it's clearly, I mean, you know, both of us, we are, we are polar opposites. Um, he's cerebral. He's, you know, somewhat introverted. I am, I, I speak too much and I'm, I'm far more extroverted than he is, but him and Toby and I really connected, uh, at these sort of weekly coffee meetups. And Toby at that point was just transitioning out of selling snowboards online to the software company. Um, as you probably know, he built, uh, he, he wrote this piece of software to sell these snowboards uh, because he couldn't find any great software on the market and very quickly realized that 
selling snowboards may be a good idea, but but selling the software behind the snowboard shop may be a great idea in that he can help entrepreneurs from all over the world build their own businesses. And wow. when I met him and he just transitioned away from snowboards into software, I was looking for a way to continue selling t-shirts, but in, in while concurrently going to class. In undergrad, I was able to skip class and just show up for the exams. But in law school, using the Socratic method, which is basically them yelling out your name randomly and you have an answer to the question, it didn't work nearly as well. And so I needed a, a business that would run virtually. And I ended up becoming one of Shopify's first customers. I built a t-shirt, an online t-shirt shop called Smoofer uh, with my best buddy in law school. And you know, uh, ran it concurrently with class and, and, and my and my my course curriculum uh, all throughout uh, all throughout law school and then throughout business school I did my MBA. After uh, so that was about 2008 at that point. Uh, in 2008, uh, I decided that I wanted to get called to the bar. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, to be honest with you, law school for me was was actually finishing school as an entrepreneur. It was it was like etiquette school to be an entrepreneur, okay. yeah. which, which was really exciting to me. It really had very little to do with the law itself. It had to do with a way of thinking, a way of arguing, a way of negotiating. It taught me how to read 4,000 pages and pick out the one line that mattered most. Um, it taught me some. You know, it taught me how to be a bit more articulate in how I express myself. And so I, I loved law school, and, and but I knew I didn't want to practice. Um, but I did want to get called to the bar because I, I felt that was kind of the last step in the process. And so uh, in 2008, 2009, I moved out to Toronto and I worked for uh, a pretty large law firm uh, and I articled for 10 months. And I absolutely hated it. It was it was the worst 10 months of my life, unlike entrepreneurship, which I felt was all about... Um, it was really a meritocracy. Uh, I felt that the legal profession, not too dissimilar from things like the accounting profession, a lot of it was about legacy. It mattered how long you've been there. It mattered who you knew. Sure. Um, and I just, I, it just didn't feel right to me. And so uh, I think I stayed 10 months in one day longer, which was exactly the amount of time I needed to get called to the, the Ontario bar. And, and then I called Toby and I said, I, I, I love Shopify. I love the product. At that point, it was really, it was Toby and Daniel and Cody, who were really the three uh, kind of co-founders of, of the company. And they were all brilliant engineers and designers. And, and uh, I had known them you know, for a couple of years because I was an early merchant and early customer of Shopify's. And these were three of the smartest people I'd ever, I'd ever met. And what was really cool was that they had a really great product. Uh, they were beginning to find product market fit. But none of them really self-identified uh, necessarily as someone who was, who was focused on the business side of, of a company. Uh, mm-hmm. They were really on the technical and the product side. And so mm-hmm. I called Toby in 2009 and said, um, I'd like to move to Ottawa and help you, Cody and Daniel, build out Shopify. And I'd like to sort of you know, take on the business responsibilities for the company. And that was it. And, and, and I, you know, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife and, and the mother of my child, uh, we, we moved to Ottawa uh, in early 2010. And I think my, my initial job, I remember asking Toby, I said, so what do you need me to do? And he, and he basically said, whatever, uh, whatever you can. And <laughs> I remember sort of thinking that um, my job was, was finding the things that they either didn't want to do or didn't know how to do. And, and also making sure that this amazing product that they had built, which I felt was by far the best product on the market, uh, that we were able to properly commercialize it, sell it, market it, um, retain customers, really build a business. And I would say my first year or two at Shopify was was mostly just being a Swiss Army knife. We raised our first round of financing in uh, mid 2010, and we had no CFO, we had no GC, and so 
I helped raise the round. I, I figured out what what a cap table needed to look like, and and, <laughs> and along with Toby, we went ahead and raised seven million dollars, um, and that was led by Bessemer. But that really was sort of my my first introduction to being in a sort of chief operating officer role or a second in command role, which was that. My job isn't necessarily one, you know, this one thing and do only that one thing. It was basically figure out what are the gaps of the company that were going to prevent us from getting to the next step or the next level that the the others, the other three, were not were not tackling. And really, the first couple of years, it was mostly around building a business around Shopify, building a partnerships team, building a business development team, figuring out what sales should look like. We didn't have a CMO at that time, so we're very closely trying to build out a, a marketing team. But really, that was that was that was the first couple of years here. It was really just about being a Swiss Army knife and, and helping, really, Toby. Uh, however, I could. In my mind, it's all almost like a marriage where you've got to have, um, you know, date nights and systems in place to make sure that relationships stay strong. What do you guys do to keep your relationship strong and growing, and um, and to keep the trust high? Yeah, it's, it's it's a really good question. Um, and actually, I get a, I got a lot of uh, calls and, and emails from from companies all over the world asking about my dynamic with, with, with Toby. And, and certainly the obvious, you know, we, we talk a lot about the yin and the yang. And, and I think that's, unfortunately, I think that's a little bit of a cop-out. Um, and it doesn't actually tell, doesn't provide much insight in terms of that dynamic. Well, a couple of things that I, I think have, have been really important for us. First of all, Toby and I are, are I mean, he, he's my boss. He's, he's also my mentor. And he's also one of my closest friends. We, we spend a lot of time together. We, we spend our, our weekends in many cases together. Um, so we have, a, we have our, our relationship extends well beyond just, just the, um, just the office. Um, but in terms of making sure our dynamic uh, is as effective as possible, the onus is on me, I believe, as the CEO to check in with him to make sure that he is getting everything that he needs from me. And uh, I check in with that fairly often, in some cases, almost on a, on a quarterly basis to say, look, here are the different areas of the business that I'm really focused on right now. Are there any things that I'm not currently doing that you think I should be doing? Or are there things that you're currently doing that you do not, that you do not want to be doing that I can pick up for you? And I think a lot of the problems that I, I hear from the CEO, COO relationships often stem from either a misalignment in terms of expectation or the data or the, um, uh, the perspective that they're, that they're working through is actually dated and things have actually changed. So for example, I was basically the general counsel up until 2014 or so. I wasn't a very good general counsel, but I was, I was the only lawyer here. And, and so I played that role. But we, Toby and I always knew that, that that was not going to be the thing I was going to focus on. We just needed to hire a great general counsel. And we only really needed it as we began to think about our, our IPO, uh, which happened in 2015. So it was easy for me to take that off my plate because that wasn't something that I felt that I was world class at. It was not, it was not something that uh, I really enjoyed doing. And it was not something that I believe that I could do better than anybody else. And and so it was obvious to move that off my plate. Same sort of thing with with you know 2011. We hired Russ, who's our, our CFO. You know, I was not. I I understood the corporate finance side of running a business. I understood how to how to raise money because of my business background and, and and going to business school. But I was not a very good sort of quasi CFO. So I, I think that 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 ensuring that. There is realignment uh, almost on a quarterly basis. Maybe it's maybe it's a different cadence for others. Maybe it's a monthly basis. And just saying, this is what I'm focused on because I think I can be world class at this. This is how I think I can have the biggest impact. And this is actually something I really enjoy doing. Using the sort of those three uh, those three um, vectors, uh, I think you end up with a really good dynamic between the CEO and the COO, especially if you continuously check in to make sure that those things haven't changed. And it's a story I've told a couple times. A couple of years ago. 
Toby walked into my office and said, uh, "We got to build. We got to build an enterprise." product. Uh, we, we have to sort of think about how we help much larger. What, what had happened was the background here was some merchants that started on Shopify when they were very, very small at their mom's kitchen table, even they, they, a lot of them grew to be like hundred million dollar a year businesses sure. and they weren't leaving Shopify. They weren't, they weren't graduating off our platform, which is fairly unique in the SMB uh, software market. And so he came in and said, look, we, we got to build this. And it was obvious that what we needed was we needed a sales team, but that wasn't something that I was especially good at. I had no experience experience building out a massive sales org. And so I, it was very clear that I needed to sort of create some scaffolding. I had to create a foundation um, to make sure we, we did have some product market fit, to make sure that we did test some assumptions and, and that there was, some, there was some momentum there. But the second that we were able to check those boxes, yes, we have product market fit, yes, there's momentum, and yes, there's scaffolding. I then went ahead and, and brought in Laura Pat- Lauren Paddleford, who's our VP of sales, and, and plus to, to run this operation and, and really scale it. And so the reason I bring up that example was Toby wanted me to get that started because that's really what I'm good at. But at a certain point, uh, my ability to scale that has diminishing marginal returns and it was time to bring in someone else. And I think if the COO and the CEO are not connecting on a regular basis to, to just align and, and ensure that, um, that, that we're both, we both have an understanding of what the most impactful things that, that I should be doing are... I think that's when you create, um, there's tension and confusion and, and all this bad stuff comes from that. So Toby and I meet every single week for a one-on-one. It's my one-on-one. So I bring to him the questions, the insight, the information that I require from him in order to better do my job. And and again, whether it's every month or every quarter, I'll, I'll use that one-on-one. Uh, I'll use that one-hour one-on-one to ask him, all right, well, here's where I'm focused. Are there any things that I'm not focused on that you think I should be? Or is there something on your plate that, that you think I should take off your plate. And uh, just by being really candid and, and transparent and, and, and honest with each other, um, we've been able to cultivate uh, what I think is, is one of the best relationships I've ever had. And, and I think he would say the same. What is it that you're doing that has turned Shopify into this magnet for great talent? Yeah, I, I agree. It's absolutely not perks. Uh, it's, it's funny how often um, people confuse uh, perks with, with culture. Yeah, we have some really cool perks here. We have you know full-time chefs in every office that cook really delicious, healthy food. Every person at Shopify uh, gets maid service at their home that we pay for. So we send uh, cleaning cleaning uh, staff to their homes to clean their, their houses twice a month. All that stuff is really great, but it's just there to make their lives a little bit better. That is absolutely not a reason to work here. Um, those are just sort of things that, that we think make our... Our, our, our team's lives a bit better. Um, I think the culture here is is really has sort of been organically developed over time. I think for the most part, most people at Shopify can can have their own companies. They can be the CEOs of their own companies. But we believe that when we sort of come together. It's kind of like the Avengers. We're kind of unstoppable. And so we've created a place where founder types and, and founders, and entrepreneurs, and people that you know are self starters and 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 that typically would be doing their own thing, that they can not only uh, come to this place, but they can thrive in this place. Um, and I think that that's one area that is really important. We, we sort of have a policy here, which is default to open. So, you know, even during the IPO process, um, you know, there were some things that we, we couldn't disclose to the whole company. That was really difficult for us. Most other companies, that would be no problem. But just for securities regulation laws, um, there were some things that we had to sort of keep uh, to a much smaller group of of stakeholders, and and that was tough for us because, frankly, we are absolutely default open culture. Once a week, or uh, in some cases, uh, once every two weeks, um, we do an AMA and ask me anything, where anyone from the company can ask the exec team or the leaders of the company any question they want. 
uh, they can do so anonymously or they can add their name to it. And, and I think that ability to put ourselves in a vulnerable situation where people can ask anything they want, but, but also get an answer that they feel uh, they're being treated like a sophisticated uh, adult, uh, I, I think makes, makes us a really great place to, to be. Um, and I, I think probably lastly, I think most people at Shopify are, are here doing their life's work. Um, that is really unique. It's it's for for most of us. It's not a job. It is you know we this is this is what we want to do. This is how we want to uh, this is how we want to spend our time with the people that we want to spend our time with. I think a lot of the companies that maybe you're talking about, they potentially are looking for a shortcut to how to how to cultivate culture. And and you know if, if you had to if you put a gun to me and say, hey, what is culture? I would say that culture is probably what people do when no one is looking. What what happens when when no one's around and people are left to their own devices? What do they do? And if they do the right things, then you probably have a really great culture. And if they do the the wrong things, you don't really have a great culture. Rachel Pashivas from Anne-Marie Skincare. When you were just starting off in your role as COO, is there anything that you wish you'd known before you started that, um, you know, looking back that you would have done differently? Oh, goodness. (laughs) Um... Possibly hiring. I think that's a big one. I feel like we've really honed in on our hiring process and onboarding process. I wish I had had what we have now back six years ago to hire that team. You know, in the first couple of years, we've gone through a few team members. um, But I think about four and a half or five years ago, we haven't had much turnover, which is really great. So I think that hiring and onboarding process, that would be something that I wish we had more more what of did us, that change yeah. for you? What did what did the hiring and onboarding process do? Um, you know, what mistakes did you stop making because of what you put in place? And I guess what what is the hiring process you've put in place? So right now it's pretty intricate and it's really long and lengthy. We do a lot of um, oh goodness. So we send them our vivid vision and our culture guide, and we make sure they're aligned with that. And we want to know that they've read it. So we might reference that during an interview. Then we have them do a phone or a Zoom interview with the direct supervisor, if it's not me. And then we'll have them do an in-person interview. Um, And I like to take them into some sort of public setting to see how they interact with the service industry, which I think is great. Um, And then we might have, if they move forward, we'll have them do a team interview to where they meet the entire team and we just get an idea of who they are and, and how vulnerable they can be and if they jive with us. And that's a really big thing because we have such a huge team and we want everybody to feel so comfortable coming into the space. Um, and then we do things like the Colby test and the color code test. And the onboarding is a you know week to two week long process where they're getting fully trained in the products, our story, our mission, uh, their role. They're doing shadowing sessions with all the other team members to get to know them. And I don't, I don't think we did any of this. We just did an interview, right? <laughs> Which, you know, like we didn't do any of it. And it's so useful to have all of these tools. And I think all of this stuff I've learned over the past couple of years, being at the CO Alliance and meeting people there, you know, you pick one thing from one company and person that you meet, and then maybe you alter another thing from another person. Um, so, so yeah, we have quite a few different things that we do right now to bring somebody on board and have them be a part of the ASC team. So when we go to the, to the grocery store today and we're looking at, you know, things like organic food versus, you know, normal food that we were used to 10 or 15 years ago, the price just seems to be so much more expensive. I mean, the other day I was looking at a dozen organic range-free, whatever eggs, and they were like $7 Mm -hmm. and then the standard ones were like $4. How do you... 
how do you build the pricing or the cost of everything into your products to be able to come to market with stuff that is so safe, I guess, and still yeah. build up a market? Eggs is one thing and food and the, you know, the food industry, it's so backwards in this country, the way we look at food and health and the way that, you know, genetically engineered crops and conventional farming is subsidized by the government. So that's one aspect. But looking at skincare, you know, a lot of the, the skincare companies out there, conventional, they're producing products that have toxic chemicals in them and they're cheap and inexpensive. So when you use them, you're also factoring into a health cost at the end. You know, there's been studies done that show annual health. Um, what was it? It was back in the New York, I think it was New York University or NYU University Medical Center. They had a study showing an annual health cost of $340 billion linking to endocrine disrupting chemicals. So that's our daily exposure. And that goes into $340 billion a year in annual health costs. So taking that alone and wanting to really just avoid chemicals in that way for your health bill, you kind of feel okay spending $50 on a moisturizer that's using pure, raw, amazing ingredients and well-crafted ingredients and avoiding fragrances and phthalates and chemicals that are really harmful to your system. How do you balance out the need to be able to sell to a consumer with, with doing it all the right way? I mean, it's, and I ask this hoping that the rest mm-hmm. of us can learn how to continue doing it, but it's the opposite of what, you know, we've been told so many companies were doing forever, which was offshoring and going to the cheapest market and using kid child labor and, you know, all the bad stuff. You guys were almost the exact antithesis of that. How do you do all that and still keep your products, you know, in a price range that works? It's interesting because we, it is expensive to do all these things and it is expensive to provide amazing paying jobs where our team members are super excited to come to work. And I don't know, they're just, it's a great, you know, year that we have. And at the end of the year, we're like, okay, are we, we're profitable. Thank goodness. Um, but it's not, we're not making billions, you know, we're not some massive corporation making tons of money where the CEO is offshore making billions of dollars every year. And we're okay with that. We're okay with just having a quality of life that's great. And I think it's just having acceptance for that and having that balance and knowing that our purpose here is to create something better and not to be greedy. Um, To me, that I think is one of the most important things about it. Eric Church from 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Acacia Fraternity, did you pull any culture or cult ideas from there into your business? Do you remember any of the things you might have pulled from Acacia? Yeah, absolutely. I think if we, if we go back to the importance of a common sense of purpose and finding, uh, finding a meaning in what you do. And interesting, going back to my days in university, uh, I found more meaning in the, in the relationships and the, and the activities doing with my peer group, whether at, at Acacia Fraternity uh, and the learning that came with leading your peers, working with your peers, striving for a common goal, common purpose, uh, that, you know, that was very, very important to me. But certainly the, the idea of how you bring people into an organization uh, is equally important because you want people to start to learn and onboard the culture. And uh, every year we'd bring, of course, new, new students would come to the university and, and uh, join the fraternity. And, and it's how you onboarded them was uh, very important to how how they, they worked within the culture, how they added to the culture. And in fact, as we look back and we go back 30 years later, you know, the culture is going to be enhanced from where we had it, but it will be have the same foundation. So that onboarding process, I've certainly learned that. And 
was not dissimilar from my time uh, time in the military, and uh, and one of the probably the most formative times for me in a cultural organization company called EF Education, uh, and uh, they have uh, they're a six billion dollar company, uh, offices in forty five countries around the world, and uh, I had good fortune of running one of their divisions, and to to participate in an organization where culture is so strong, whether you're in Germany, Japan, Canada, the United States, Switzerland you name it, you can get the sense, you get exactly what the culture is, regardless of what the culture is of that country, the, con- the culture of the company shone through. And mm-hmm. that is uh, certainly for me, the value of culture coming from College Pro, from the military, from certainly from EF Education, and now at O2E Brands is paramount. And uh, so, you know, culture uh, eats strategy for breakfast, you know, is, is commonly said. So give me um, a bit of a background as to where you came from, because you came into this with a lot of experience and you walked into a $100 million company, whereas when I started there, it was only $2 million. You walked into a $100 million company and really grew it. So you came in with a lot more experience in your role than I ever did. Tell me a little bit about your background and then what it was like walking into the brand the first, you know, first year. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, and uh, Brian Skidmore, who you know very, very well, of course, and uh, who I've got to know very well, uh, had uh, he and I had a conversation, even actually previously to uh, to me being inside the organization, I had connected through uh, through mutual acquaintance and yourself as well. And he he kind of pointed out to me that I had made a career of working with uh, with founders and and helping founders uh, bring their businesses to the next level and helping them realize their true intent and and what their their mission is. And so uh, my background has been working with a variety of of uh, founders. Uh, organizations ranging anywhere from a startup up to a couple of billion dollars. And uh, I find myself in a place where I can be most successful when I'm partnered with uh, the founder, the CEO, the visionary, and I can help drive an organization to the next level uh, by by working towards those goals that are going to have uh, the biggest impact on achieving those uh, those, out- those goals and those outcomes. And you talk about Brian kind of being the visionary, and does he still use the concept, uh, the, the painted picture concept? Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's pivotal, and not just in Wonder Got Junk, but in fact, all of our, all of our brands, uh, brands of Wow One Day, You Move Me, and Shack Shine, uh, and the O2E, Ordinary to Exceptional Company, being the, the parent company of all of those. We each have, uh, they have separate uh, painted pictures for each of those organizations, and, uh, and we encourage everybody individually to have their own painted picture for themselves. What came naturally to you as a leader and what did you have to work on? Like, what were you, I think all of us as leaders are 16 year olds trapped in adult bodies and, <laughs> and you know, at times we're, we're faking it, right? We get up going, God, I hope people don't figure out that I have no idea what I'm doing. So what, what came naturally to you as a leader that you can share with us and what were you faking it that maybe you had to work on or that you, you suck at? Yeah, it's a great question because I, lo- I look back at early days of leadership, whether whether there or in rugby or my first uh, first business opportunities, and I think, oh my God, how is it possible I got anything done? I was such a crappy leader. Uh, so, I, so while I appreciate your accolades, uh, uh, that they in retrospect, I look back, I'm like, I can't believe we actually did what we did. Uh, <laughs> so it's all it's all relative, I suppose, at, at the time. Um, what for me the migration uh, for me as an individual was if I look back uh, I had way too much command and control in my world mm-hmm. and so one of the things I did learn at the fraternity was how to work with your peers and how to get buy-in and 
how to use how, how to use your ears more than your mouth and get the get again get the common sense of purpose and then how to lead people to that to that right area and then holding people to a standard that they want to be held to and not letting them slip what advice would you give them going into that event yeah i think i clearly uh, it's a great opportunity for networking and can and build your build your network of support in your group so uh you know i am very fortunate to be in ypo uh and my i'm graduating this year because i'm now too old to be in ypo wow we're there oh but yeah we're officially old but uh, but my forum the forum group i work with is really powerful and has really influenced me and i think made me a better person and so i think the to create your own forum forums in in your in your uh, COO alliance uh, and work with that group and hold each other accountable because oftentimes there isn't anybody out there who's holding us accountable uh, outside of our uh, even inside our organization and why what I love about my forum is they they do hold me accountable to what I say I'm going to do month to month and uh, both personally and professionally so I think that's it that would be a cool way to to connect with other people in similar roles but I think also sharing best practices uh, around working with, if, if they are working with a founder visionary type, how that works and how that, how that two in a box uh, can work. And this is a concept that you know, Brian has, has coined, which is two in a box leadership. I love it. And uh, so that kind of refers to is a uh, top of the org chart, you've got, uh, you've got a box. You've got, in fact, instead of having two boxes of COO and CEO, you have a, a in one box and just an, an angle line across the middle thing. So we're, we are operating together, uh, not as a, not in a co-CEO role, but as two in a box decision-making and, 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 and uh, defining a role. So I only say that if that's the kind of relationship you have with your, uh, with the CEO and founder, that works really well. If that's not what you have, that's not a great recommendation. So I would say figure out what kind of relationship you have with, with uh, between COO and CEO, find those people who are similar and work with them to refine your skills. There's a, there's a great book called uh, called Rocket Fuel, which talks about what it means to have uh, this concept of two in a box. They, don't, they call it something else, but it is uh, very similar. And in there, it ta- there's some very specific agenda items on how you stay aligned and how you divide responsibilities. Yeah, it's a great book. It's Gino Wickman who yeah. uh, created yeah. EOS Traction. That's a great book to recommend. The, um, now, do you take the, the, the two-in-a-box concept down to uh, working with your, like, a VP that reports to you? Do you have the same kind of two-in-a-box? I don't. I don't. No, that's really, and certainly reading Gino's book as well, that's really designed for, for the, the CEO, CEO relationship. Got it. Uh, okay. And as, as we build out our brands, uh, each of the brands, so each of the brands has their own managing director. Uh, one of you got junk. Uh, wow, one day you move me shack shine. Uh, and I'm starting to work more closely with them in that two-in-a-box mentality because uh, they're now running really their own organization. That's a tongue twister. It used to be hard enough to say one eight hundred got jumped. One day painting. Uh, you move me shack shine. Like well done. Tell tell us how your typical month, I guess, and typical day works. Yeah, fortunately, I don't have a typical one, which is great because I'm uh, I like I like change. But uh, I'll either fly in uh, anywhere from uh, Sunday night. Uh, uh, so if I have early morning means to be there for Monday morning or I'll, or I will fly in Monday night, uh, and be there for Tuesday morning. We do have an office here in, in Toronto, but, uh, 
100 and 120 people here in Toronto as well. So I need time in both offices. So I try and set up so I at least have Fridays uh, in Toronto in the office. Uh, and more typically is Monday through Thursday in Vancouver or out um, meeting with, uh, with franchise partners at, or work. we have a, a fantastic marketing consultant in, uh, in Austin, Texas, try and get down to see him on a regular basis. So uh, but my t- I, the time that I have in the air every week and I have roughly nine hours of focus time to myself every week on the plane where I get to do the reading I need to do. I get to do the research. Uh, I don't go on Wi-Fi, so I avoid email. And I, I, this time is so valuable to me to uh, prepare myself for the week or finish the week. And those weeks where I stay in Vancouver for the weekend uh, and I miss that nine hours of focus time, it's it's a it's a terrible thing. So I, I've uh, I re- if I miss a week of, of commuting back and forth, it's it's really <laughs> tough. That's interesting. So you really do use that time effectively, and, and it, it's high highly scheduled regimented time uh, that I use. So I say, and it, it's a two hours. I'm going to read these articles, or I'm going to make sure that I read this in preparation for our, our executive steering group. But I, I use that time very very specifically and uh, and schedule it out just like I would. A, a real work day. And I think your your marketing consultant down in Austin is Roy Williams. Correct. Yeah, the Wizard of Ads. The Wizard of Ads, man. That guy has got like the unbelievable what he's done in his business. Anybody who's looking, at, does he do more than radio, or is he just still in the radio? He, radio TV, uh, but and his creative ability is uh, is second to none. Uh, uh, he his he, he has he does have a, a philosophy which makes him very effective, which is he will only work with the decision maker in the organization. Huh. And uh, which means uh, either Brian, myself, or uh, David St. James, our managing director of Water Got Junk, has to be present in a meeting. If anybody else is there, one of us has to be there to ultimately make the decision. And uh, that's, you know, it's, it's a rate limiting step for which companies you can work with. Yep. Uh, but he is specialized in, in working with those companies that, uh, where you can move quickly. Uh, he also challenges us high on operation. So operational constraints are of no, no issue to him. So we say, he says, uh, open to midnight. Uh, he doesn't want to hear anybody say, tell us all the reasons why being open to midnight is a problem. Uh, he really does focus uh, on what the consumer wants, what the customer wants. And uh, that really does challenge us operationally, especially as a franchise system. Uh, it is, uh, it's hard to do, but anything hard, worth doing is usually hard to do. Anna Collins from Bulletproof Coffee. You mentioned something early with, um, with, with some of the projects. It's kind of like, I can't remember the term you used, but it's like green lighting some and yellow lighting some. Like it was like not, not no, but not right now or not yet um, or trading one off for the other. How do you get Dave? Um, and Dave's a spectacular entrepreneur. And like you said, he has 100 ideas, 98 of them are good. How do you get someone like that to not want to start all of their ideas? What do you, what's the system you do to grab the ideas, track the ideas, not kill their spirit? How do you, how do you keep him um, excited and, and having those ideas without killing it off and, then, and without having to start them all? One part is where can we take an idea? If it's not now, then let's set a time frame to revisit. 
So, for example, I created a uh, about a I don't know it was probably six months in or I know it's hard to remember now when I started, but I, I want to say it was about six months in, and I created a series called "What the CEO Needs to Know." And I said, we're going to do every month, we're going to do product innovation reviews with you and we'll spend 90 minutes on product innovation so that you're not wondering where these things are in the innovation pipeline. When we make a trade-off and we say, we're going to do this, not that, we're going to sequence this over here, and we're going to have these streams that match up different consumer segments, we're going to then have a cadence of, your, it's not going to just disappear, right? And so this is a way to continue to have visibility, but at the right level and with the right framework, so it's not a free-form brainstorming idea of just here are all the things you want to go do. Let's put it in context where we're actually talking about implications and trade-offs that we will make on the business and on customers. So it's not a free-form, hey, it's just out here, which is the entrepreneurial way to do it. Hey, let's just take everything. There's all, all 99 ideas. There. Yeah, they're all great. Now let's bring them down to the reality of business and customers and what the implications are. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. No, it does. My, my yeah, because I, I want to share. So uh, it no, makes my, me, that, that makes me. I got 74 different areas to go with you on this stuff. It's, it's awesome. Well, well that, 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 let, me, let me tell you my, my, my basic framework for leadership. Uh, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. And in between the two, the leader is both a servant and a debtor. And that sums up the progress of an art leader. And that's from Max Dupree's The Art of Leadership. And what I love about that is the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And reality for me, Cameron, is what's true today? What's the state of the union for all facts on the ground? How many SKUs do we have? How many customers do we have? What are our segments? Who are we serving? What is our cash position? What, you know, everything of the reality, what's true today? What's the team capability? So when I walked in the door, I did that. What's the reality of today, right? That was the first thing I did. And then I said, here's my State of the Union report. The other part of defining reality is the opportunity, the vision, the possibility, which is what I was talking about. Okay, here's the big vision. And then what's the roadmap and strategy and goals that are going to take us there and both, you know, on this multi-year. And so that reality up, both what's true and the possibility, is that frame that I'm operating from with Dave and the, and the team. How far out do you plan versus how far out do you allow yourself to think with Dave and Vision? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there, there are multiple, there are different time horizons, right? So we're doing the big vision when, it, when, again, when I walked in the door, it was, and when I was interviewing with the company, it was clear that there was a strong mission and a strong vision. But actually talking to and values, like gratitude is a practice, uh, is a value that we have at Bulletproof. We have seven other values. Well, if you asked different folks on the team when I walked in the door, I did, and they would give you 10 different answers for what the vision is, 10 different answers for the mission. They would all say gratitude is one of the values, but you get other answers. And so, again, in the first 90 days, I went through a process with Dave and the team using employee input, customer input, and a facilitator. And then we actually defined this definitively what our values and the vision mission to be able to say it, and everyone would say the same thing. And then we use that frame to start doing performance reviews, to start doing, uh, to do the hiring and interview and baking them into the process to help us scale. And so that's another example of uh, creating a common reality and context for the team and, and us all to operate uh, and practice business in. That vision is a 20-year vision okay. to tap into the unlimited potential of being human. Yep, yep. 
So that's when you're always communicating and talking about, you're probably planning in a more granular basis than three years out, two years out. And then we have the strategic planning process. And those are three years strategic planning process. Right. Do that. And then we have our uh, operational annual planning and we do the three-year planning process ahead of the one-year planning. And we're constantly doing the three-year planning ahead of our one-year planning. And then we do mid-year sort of check-in with that. Sure. If you, if you were to go back to Amazon for a bit and, and think about when you left Amazon and came into Bulletproof, what skills did you bring with you from Amazon that you still use today? Or what styles of leadership did you bring in? And then what did you have to change? What did you, what were you maybe really great at or doing at Amazon that just wouldn't work in the entrepreneurial world and you had to reinvent? I spent, uh, it's a tardy answer just to Amazon question because I spent, you know, seven years at Microsoft. Right. So what I'd say is, and when I bring all of that, like an Amazon ruined me, ruined me forever with, uh, for example, PowerPoint. Because at Amazon, you can't do PowerPoint. You can only write narratives. It's only written word. And every meeting starts with a document and nobody talks until everyone reads the document. Wow. And, uh, and a document has data in it. And, and so therefore, you do that for any number of years and any other meeting is crap compared to that. No shit. So what I did want to do when I walked into Bulletproof is crush this very entrepreneurial uh, company that didn't ever write anything down like a narrative, right? Sure. Yeah. And so what I did was I started sprinkling in and demonstrating some practice of the document or narrative form. And I also, like I said, I brought some other mechanisms in uh, data, uh, you know, increasing the cap data and analytics capability, which and Amazon has strengthened um, and creating a weekly business review. So I didn't start the first year doing weekly business review, but by the second year we have implemented weekly business review. But what I did the first year was create a data analytics capability uh, and started building that up so that we could do those other things. So creating those enabling type, and those are normal scaling up type stages to go through, right? Yeah, well, they're normal, except a lot of companies don't do it, right? Um, you talk about the data analytics. I'm curious. I was talking to a client this morning that I coach, and, and they were measuring everything, and he was showing me all the metrics. I'm like, dude, there's no way you can ever look at all this data. Like, you have so much data. It's almost like plugging your portion into a car dealership and looking at the 75,000 things they measure. Yeah. What are the most important ones? How did you decide what to measure and how to look at it? And um, yeah. who was looking at it? Can you walk us through some of that? Sure. Well, it, it, it uh, depends on which areas of the business you're talking about and what the framework is, are the input outputs. So a lot of, so, you know, some companies and practices look at outputs like revenue is an output, but what are the inputs, the number of customers and on, a, on an e-commerce business, you have customers, average order value ahead of, and, and what are the inputs to the number of customers have to do with new customers and return customers? And then for an e-commerce site, you have traffic coming in, right? Uh, so how many visitors are visiting? What's their conversion? So conversion, visitors and uh, traffic or visitors and conversion are input metrics to average order value and uh, revenue and revenue in units sold. And so you start, like, I'm just giving an example on an commerce business, how you would start looking and saying, well, what matters? Those are all metrics that matter, inputs and outputs for the, for the daily business. 
You can drive and say, well, what impacts conversion on a website, on a product detail page? And then you start talking about, okay, load time, speed of the page, usability, what information or content is on the page, where it's positioned on the page. I could go on and talk about, wow. there's the average thing. So it depends on you know what area you're talking about that's different than um, supply chain or retail distribution. So with your people, the, the stuff that you are the best at, if your team was to describe you right now, I mean, we've certainly got a huge glimpse of it, but what do you think, how would your people describe you? And are any of them remote or is, is your team all office, um, you know, based in Seattle? We are, we are a combination of, of remote and based in Seattle, although we've continued to create a critical mass uh, hub here in, in the headquarters in Seattle. My direct reports are mostly here. Some, uh, a couple of them are remote, if that's the question. Yeah, and how would they describe you as a leader? I want to say direct and demanding, direct demanding and likes data. And then you said you said earlier that yeah. and then you kind of finish everything with that thank you, right? With that gratitude. Is that yeah. is that natural for you or is that do you have to Yeah, work? I you know, I'd say they yeah, no, I'd say I'd say they no 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 the gratitude, I do the thank you. I, I, I the other thing it would be connected and caring. I think my you know, I sort of think about leadership, my leadership, if you want to say what my leadership style is what people would say, distinguishes my style is high I'd say uh, character, competence and caring. And the, the the character is you know high integrity, high high intention that shows up like Sure. And also down the competence part is, you know, strong, basic capability and also don't, uh, and, uh, and this other part I used to be like, don't suffer fools, right? Like very quickly have a, have a, a strong point of view uh, and communicate it directly around whether we're interviewing somebody right on an interview loop that, you know, create clarity and have a strong, uh, strong point of view on that and communication. And then the caring part that I do care about each individual and I care about them professionally and, and as a person. And so what that means is I've invested in their success mm -hmm. uh, as well and work to be that leader that is not only helping to provide clarity on the, the reality, but also servant in helping to unblock and, and be of service. What can I do to help uh, with them and their team? You're clearly one of those exceptional leaders, like the ability to straddle and or go back and forth between the corporate world and then the entrepreneurial world back and forth is, I, I don't, I don't see it virtually ever. Um, it's pretty amazing to watch and to, to have seen you over the last couple of years. If you were to have that, that kind of one final word of advice, not for our listener, but for yourself, if you were to, to give your 21 year old self a bit of leadership advice, what would you wish you'd known at 21 that you don't know to be true? Yeah, I did. I did a Microsoft. When I was at Microsoft, there was a, a woman who wrote a book, Alan, I can't remember last name, but it was letters to her younger self. And I did a panel on this. So I had a whole letter I wrote to my younger self. But the number one thing would be don't, don't take myself so seriously. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.